Well, good morning, New City. I'm Lindsay. It's good to see you all this morning. So we're continuing in our series called This Passage Changed My Life. And the whole idea of this series is really to give our pastors the opportunity to share a scripture that's been meaningful to them or that has shaped and changed their lives. And so this morning, we really get the privilege to hear from our friend Bob Schindler. And so Bob and his family have been a part of New City for like 20 years. And so Bob has provided and continues to provide tremendous leadership to New City in a lot of different areas, particularly, I want to draw attention to one, is New City Academy. So Bob is on our teaching team at Academy. And Academy is really a new initiative that we launched this past year um, to help you all, to equip you all as Christ followers in your journey to be disciple makers. And so Bob has been really instrumental in that and really in our mission to help people find and follow Jesus. So Academy, they studied Old Testament this past year, and we're launching a class coming up this fall, New Testament. So be on the lookout for that and make plans to join us in September. So it's really been my privilege to get to know Bob over this past year, and it's my privilege to introduce him to you all today. So will you join me in welcoming Bob this morning? Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, Lindsay. It's really my privilege to be here today, and I hope by the end of the time that we have together that you'll understand some of the reasons that's true. I'd like to begin by introducing my family to you if I could. That's my son, John, my oldest son, John, and his wife, Callie, and their three kids, Levi, Jane, and Adam. On the far left, they live in Knoxville, Tennessee. Then my second son, Scott, and Naomi, his wife, and their daughter, Millie, they live in Asheville. Then my wife, Beth, who we're getting ready to celebrate our 47th anniversary, and anybody that's put up with me for 47 years deserves a hand. And then my youngest son, Brian, and his wife, Hannah, and their son, Hampton, and their other son in the womb, Cyrus, is there, and they happen to be here this morning. We're so glad to have them. And then my oldest, Katie, is on the far right. Now, I grew up in, actually, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky when I was nine months old. I went to Vanderbilt University where I studied chemical engineering, and I met my wife there. And from the moment that I stepped onto the Vanderbilt campus, there was infused in me a deep hatred for the University of Tennessee. Thank you. I literally threw oranges at the basketball team, the University of Tennessee basketball team, the first time they came out on the court my freshman year to play Vanderbilt and Memorial Gymnasium. And because I never repented of that sin, God sent me for 20 years to East Tennessee, and I raised four obnoxious UT fans, of which Brian is one of them. And even my wife converted. Now, it's a lonely life being a Vanderbilt fan in the midst of those that orange. So you can pray for me because I find myself drifting, like almost wanting to root for UT, but please pray for me in that. Now, after graduating from Vanderbilt, my wife and I moved to Chicago. Then we moved to Dallas, then to Orlando, back to Dallas, then East Tennessee. And then 20 years ago, we moved here to Charlotte. Uh, during those years, I, I was in the chemical business. I was in the computer business. I played professional golf. And then I actually transitioned to vocational ministry, and I was an associate pastor for eight years 
and then uh, was a church planter and senior pastor for 10 years. I burned out of that last job and came to Charlotte, the invitation of church at Charlotte to recover. And when I moved here, I got involved in the current ministry that, I'm involved, that I work with called Seed Sports, and our mission is to, to mobilize sports chaplains and local church sports rec and fitness leaders to make disciples and redeem the sports culture. And I've, been the, I've had the privilege of being a supportive missionary for New City and, and Church of Charlotte since 2008. Now, Church of Charlotte, New City, Charlotte and you all have been an incredible channel of grace to my family. And so that's one of the reasons that it's just a privilege to be here today. Now, uh, who recognizes this man? If you do, raise your hand. Some of you do. His name is Ted Turner. If I were to ask you what you know about him, you might tell me that he's a billionaire. You might tell me that he's a media mogul, and he actually started CNN, the first 24-hour news service, cable news service. He started TBS, the first cable superstation. He was a former Hawks and Braves, Atlanta Hawks and Atlanta Braves owner. He's also, up until just recently, the largest private landowner in the United States, he owns over 2 million acres with ranches in Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and New Mexico. By the way, that's just, just to give you a perspective, that's six times the size of Mecklenburg County. So you could go to Fort Mill, drive to Davidson, and you'd only be one-sixth of the way to cover his whole land ownership. You might not know that he grew up as an Episcopalian and at the death, tragic death of his younger sister, at the funeral, someone walked up to him and said, well, I guess God just needed another flower for his garden. To which Ted Turner openly confessed, I will never worship that God. And to my knowledge, at 84 years old, he's never violated that vow. Now, I bring that up because this morning I want to talk about the importance of true compassion and the passage that changed my life, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And I want to talk about the need for true compassion, the source of true compassion, and the access to true compassion. So in honor of God's Word, would you please stand with me as I read our passage today? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank you. You can be seated. So let's look first of all this morning at the need for true compassion. Now, I don't think I have to tell you that we live in a broken, trauma-filled world. There have been over 350 mass shootings since the beginning of the year. That's over 50 a month, over one a day. One in every four students reports being bullied during school. One in every four girls and one in every 10 boys will suffer horrific abuse by the time they're 18. 
350,000 children go missing every year in the United States. Estimated one-third of those are trafficked. Now, men and women, just to give you a perspective, that's 1% of our population. That's like two rows of this gathering just disappearing off the face of the earth every year, never to be found again in most cases. 20% of high school students report having serious thoughts of suicide. And the suicide rate doubling among that age from 2008 to 2018 to the point that now suicide is the second highest cause of death for those aged 15 to 24. Now, trauma just isn't for young people. Adults have to deal with challenging children, aging parents, divorce, death, decline in personal health, disease, greed, anger, selfishness, and injustice. One in three women and one in four adult men experience some sort of physical abuse from an intimate partner. And all of that brokenness and trauma is lived out before us either in the first person or in the second person on the media outlets that we consume. Now, sometimes, though, the trauma doesn't come in such violent form. I grew up in an upper-middle-class family that lived on a golf course, raised by a mom whose father was an alcoholic and physically abused her mother to the point that she vowed never to trust another man, married my father a passive man she could control, whose father actually had committed suicide when he was a young boy, and he never grew up knowing what it was like to really have a father. Now, everything was fine in my family for this little freckle-faced, burr-head, red-headed little kid who was very, very compliant until in about fifth grade I started to express preference. And it scared my mother to death. And so she did everything she could to shut down that masculinity with her anger. We would be just moving along through life, and all of a sudden she would just see me in a way that scared her, and she would blow up. I would try to calm her anger by talking with her. She would not listen to me. Eventually she would run off into her bedroom, slam the door, and I'd be there alone. My dad would then come to me and say, now, son, you need to understand your mom's having a hard time right now. You need to go and apologize to her, which I would do very compliantly sometimes for days until she would move back in to my life. And I learned very early that I was a burden to have in a relationship. I learned that if there was a problem in the relationship, it was all my fault, and that the solution lied totally with me, and that nobody cared about my pain. I was alone. And men and women, those lies stayed with me for a long time. They affected the way I thought about myself, They affected the way I thought about the world around me. They affected the way I related to people. And they affected the way I just generally felt as a being moving through life. Now, 
I'm convinced that my story isn't necessarily the only one that's like that. I don't really know the trauma that you've dealt with throughout your life, but I'm convinced that if I sat with all of you, which I wish I had the opportunity to do, and heard your stories, that there would be stories that would break my heart. You see, this is, this is the world we live in. This is the, the reality of the broken, trauma-filled world that we have. Chris likes to say, as you've heard him say often, we're either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or going into a storm. Now, that's true not just today, but it was true when the writer of Hebrews wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, unlike James that we just finished studying, Hebrews does not have an identified author and audience. Now, historically, those scholars, because of the content that's in Hebrews, have identified that audience as Hellenistic Jews that were living outside of Israel in the Greco-Roman world who had been converted to Christ and in that world were being marginalized for their faith and suffering, in some cases, the seizure of property and imprisonment. They were city dwellers who were experiencing the broken, trauma-filled world that we just spoke of. And the writer of Hebrews understood that the danger that we all face in that place is to lose our faith. Not necessarily to abandon it altogether, but to settle for the lesser story than the one that Jesus, the hero of, acknowledged and lived out before us and invites us into this creation, fall, redemption, consummation, great gospel story. But when we face this trauma, it's so easy for us to think, if God's so good and sovereign, why are things happening so badly? I mean, why isn't God showing up like I want him or expect him to? In fact, why is he so silent when it seems like I need him the most? And that brings us to our first verse. The author says, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Because we have a great high priest, this is supposed to impact our ability to hold fast our confession. Now, this verse is in line with the main idea of Hebrews. The main idea of Hebrews is summed up in the word better. The key character of Hebrews is Jesus. So if you were going to get the big idea of, of Hebrews, Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. And he's better than all the priests, the great, the, the high priests that have come before him. So you remember that high priests were the ones that represented the people before God. They would offer sacrifices on their behalf to atone or make good on their sins. And they, he would offer prayers to bring those needs of the people before God, their sins and their needs. They represented the people before God. And the author says, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And he's highlighting this idea that Jesus was the human aspect of him and the Son of God, the divine. And this idea of the synthesis of these two concepts, his div divinity and his humanity, is what makes him not just a great high priest, the great high priest. 
And so because of that, he says, hold fast or seize your confession. Don't let it go. Don't be tempted to settle for a lesser story. But you might be asking very rightly so, Bob, what does this verse have to do with true compassion? There's nothing in there about true true compassion. And you could say, if you left at verse 14, that, that it's up to us to screw up this courage and the strength to press on and to stay holding on to our confession. But the author doesn't stop there. He brings us to the next verse that talks about the source of true compassion. And so when we look at that verse, if you'll notice it, it, verse 15 begins with for or because of. Because of verse 15, verse 14 is able to be fulfilled. Verse 15 is the root of verse 14. And what does he say here? He says, because of the heart of Christ, this source of true compassion, we can hold fast our confession. Now, he makes it very clear that this this high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's not, if you'll notice the the verses, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. The positive statement is this high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now that word sympathize is a really important word. It means literally to suffer with. And so Jesus doesn't just have sort of a a tender compassion for us. He doesn't just have sorrow for the struggles that we have. He actually suffers with us everywhere we hurt. There isn't a place that we hurt that he doesn't hurt. And the author goes on to say, why is that? Because he he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. There is no place in your life that Jesus, where you're struggling with weakness, that Jesus hasn't experienced himself and therefore suffers with you when you feel that temptation and weakness. Now, some of you might be objecting, yeah, but Jesus did that without sin. How can he really understand how hard it is for me because of that, two, two passages that I want to point out to. First of all, Dane Ortland in the book, Gentle and Lowly, which I highly recommend, says it this way. The writer of Hebrews is taking us by the hand and leading us deep into the heart of Christ, showing the under, unrestrained witness of Jesus regarding his people. And then C.S. Lewis under anticipating this objection that he can't possibly sympathize with us because he's never been without sin, goes on to say this, imagine a man walking against the wind. Once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man lies down, giving in, and thus not knowing what it would have been like 10 minutes later. Jesus never laid down. He endured all our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He, therefore, knows the strength of temptation better than any of us, Only he truly knows the cost. Men and women, do you hear what he's saying? It isn't that Jesus just sort of understands your temptations. He understands more about our temptations than any of us in this room will ever know because he never laid down. He waited until the wind would stop. This is our great high priest, Jesus. Now, that reality... The reality that Jesus suffers with us, that he is right there next to us, 
overcomes the temptation that we all feel of being alone in our weaknesses, pains, and struggles. That's the heart of Jesus. But it's not the heart that most of us would necessarily attribute to him in many ways because of the world in which we live. This broken, trauma-filled world offers us just the opposite. Think about Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Steve Jobs. These are all men that were acknowledged significantly for their greatness. And instead of having compassion for the weaker, lesser ones around them, they had complete impatience. They drove their peers. They yelled and screamed at their weaknesses. But that's not the heart of Jesus that the author wants to write about here. Now, you go back to my story. Can you begin to understand how this passage changed my life? As the Holy Spirit massaged this passage into my heart and my heart into this passage, it cast down the lie that I was alone in my pain. Listen again to Ortland as he speaks of this heart. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never, ever, ever alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. He's currently shouldering right now, today, every single temptation and struggle that you wrestle with. The weaknesses that he speaks of here, that he sympathizes with, is a broad term. It means anything and everything that would potentially cause us to let go of our faith. It's a very all-encompassing word. And he today is shouldering every single one of those for every single one of you and me. Contrary to what we expect to be the case, therefore, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. This is the source of true compassion that we all long for. But the author doesn't just stop there. He wants to make sure that not only do we understand in the need for true compassion, we see the source of true compassion, but he wants to make sure that we access this source. And he goes on further in the next verse to say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then, in, in the NASB and the NAV, it says, therefore, Again, 16 is rooted in verse 15. Because of 15, this is what the author is saying we are to do. Let us, therefore, because we have this high priest who sympathizes with us, let's go to the throne of grace with confidence. The word confidence there is a really beautiful word. It doesn't mean like I've got my chest out and I'm boasting in what I'm about to do. It means literally unfettered speech. It means that I go without any posturing in what I say to this one. 
great high priest. It means I'm vulnerable and honest about what I experience. And so he lays out three ideas here in that process of going to him. First, we go vulnerably. That's the with confidence. And what we find when we go is we, we receive mercy and we then find grace. So we go vulnerably, we f- receive mercy, and we find grace. And men and women, this order is really important. It's really important. The first thing that we receive is this mercy. Now, if I were to ask you, what does mercy mean? You might say it means not getting what we deserved. And you would be accurate but incomplete in that definition. You see, when the psalmist cried out, have mercy on me, O God, or when blind Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus on the road, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, they were not asking for God to give them, to not give them what they deserved. That's not what they were asking for. They were asking for this God to have compassion on their situation and out of that compassion to step into that and alleviate what was going on. You see, mercy is the outer response of inward sympathy or true compassion. It's the expression of it. It's the outer expression of it. And the the writer here is saying that when you go, this sympathetic high priest expresses mercy. This is what you get. First of all, this is, Bob, what you get. This is what you all get when you go. You don't get a stern rebuke. You don't get a, are you here again? You get an outer expression of compassion. And, And men and women, I remember the first time this hit me. I was... I was praying, and I was reflecting on this verse again, and it just hit me. This is what I receive. And Jesus, right at that moment, gave me a picture of me standing next to him and him pulling me close to his chest and leaning down and saying, Bob, I am so sorry. This is so hard. You see, we had moved to a town to start a church, a daughter church of that first church that I was served in, with the clearest call that we'd ever had. Within six months of us moving there, my wife went through some horrific times that we now would call a breakdown that eventually led to some incredible healing, but were, inc- in s- were really hard. I was worried about my marriage. I was worried about our family. I was worried about my wife. We were not only struggling there, we were struggling with our finances. And this church felt like a dandelion flower that you could just come along and blow it away at any time. And it was at that time that Jesus expressed very tangibly to the way that I could sense him, Bob, I'm so sorry this is so hard. Now, do you, as the, do you see how that would fit my story again? As, again, the Spirit of God massaged that into my heart, all of my lack of validation disappeared. See, Jesus not only sympathized, he validated what I felt at that moment in time. And he validates what you're struggling with, just as he did with me. 
And so since then, that was my first picture, but there have been regular experiences of that true compassion that's expressed in mercy. Within the last month or so, that old enemy of feeling alone resurfaced. And I wrestled with that. And one Sunday at South Park, I was sitting up on the top left, and we began to sing a song. And the Spirit of God just said, reminded me of this, this mercy, this expression of true compassion. It just melted me. It slowed me down. It just allowed me at that moment to see not the grace, but the grace giver who could then lead me to discover the grace that I need. This is what Jesus does. He expresses mercy so that we're in an environment where he can offer the grace that we so desperately need. Now, when we say grace, if again, if I asked you what does that mean, you would probably say undeserved favor. You get what you don't deserve. And that would be correct, but the author had something different in mind, more than that. You see, grace that we discover at that time from the grace giver is to be empowering to those of us that are feeling tempted to quit to give up, to let go of this story. That's the way the writer Paul spoke about this grace in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There was a weakness that Paul was struggling with, so much so that he asked God three times to take it away, and each time God said, no, no, no. And then he looked at, at Paul and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Do you see the parallel? Power, weakness, grace, power. Grace is sufficient for my power is enough for you in your weakness. So when we experience this grace in the face of our weakness, it gives us the strength to press on. And this is the way, the flow of the way that God has ordained goes from weakness through mercy to grace. And it changed my life. It gave me not only the compassion that I needed to slow me down, it brought me into the environment where I could find the grace from the grace giver to press on and to stay gripped to the gospel that I felt tempted to let go. But it didn't only change me, it changed the way I treat other people as well. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, on the, uh, I was connecting with a, a sports minister that I meet with regularly. And he began the conversation by saying he was just really down, really almost to the point of depressed, burnout. And, he, and this guy had been in sports ministry for 10 years and been, had experienced pretty significant growth in the ministry that he was in. But on a regular basis, he would say to me, if only, and he would finish the sentence, if only I had more resources, if only I had more money, if only I had more people, then we could really get the success that I think God has in mind for us. Now, I know I'm a child of God, and I know he loves me, but I just wonder why it seems 
that I must be doing something wrong, that God is holding out on me, or that I just can't figure this ministry thing out. And I asked him, I said, when was the first time you remember ever thinking those thoughts? Without hesitation, he immediately went to a trauma that he had in high school. And he told me about this situation. And we talked about it and and listened more and more. And then I finally said to him, what would you say to that young man, that sophomore in high school? And he gave a bunch of truth that was very meaningful at the time. It would have been meaningful. Then, then I said, well, what do you think God would say to that boy? And again, he gave some meaningful truth. But what I noticed is he went from weakness right to grace. He skipped over the mercy. And I said to my friend, it's interesting to me that neither you nor God, you would have them say, I'm really sorry for the pain and the struggle that that was. And we went right to Hebrews chapter 4. And we talked through Hebrews chapter 4 and about how Jesus would say to that young boy, I'm really sorry for that pain. And in that, then I said, now imagine you've got children, I said to him, in the, in the atmosphere of that mercy. If your 10-year-old daughter came to you and said, Dad, I want the keys to the car, what would you say to her? He said, of course, I'd say No. And if she said, but dad, you're holding out on me. Don't you understand? If if I don't get to drive the car now, I'm going to suffer. You don't really love me, do you? And it clicked. And the next day, he he, he texted me and said, thanks again for yesterday. It was a real breakthrough for me. Praise God. Now, men and women, I've had that experience enough in the last 20-some years to know that has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the Spirit of God leading people in their weakness into the atmosphere of true compassion and mercy to find the grace that they deeply need. And just as it changed me and it changed these people that I've connected with, it can change you. Now, once again, I don't really know exactly all that you're dealing with right now. But listen again to Ortland as he says it this way. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing you by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we're laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of this world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel. Can you identify with any of that this morning? There. He says, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what we such testing feels like. He sits close to us. He embraces us. He's with us. Solidarity. So with that in mind, I hope, and it's been my prayer, that each of you has heard the Spirit of God urging you to come, to draw near, to in vulnerability express your weakness and find there, receive there 
the mercy you deeply long for and the grace you desperately need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking these words and illuminating our hearts. Would you grant these people that are sitting here today the faith to unite those words with their situation and go to come to you to receive the mercy and to find the grace. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.